you have your Bibles, I do invite you. We are turning to the last chapter of 1 Kings. This is the third and final judgment encounter between God and Ahab. The first judgment encounter took place during the two battles with Syria, and there... Ahab refuses to obey God and and allows the king of Syria, whom God had delivered into Ahab's hands, to uh, be released, to go free uh, against the Lord's will. And that resulted in a judgment. And then last time, when we looked at Ahab, we we saw how um, through his wife, he had uh, uh, the, the righteous man Naboth, was murdered so that the king, King Ahab, could take possession of his vineyard. And again, that triggered another visit from the prophet, this time the prophet Elijah, who reiterates this judgment, uh, this devastating judgment to Ahab and to his household. Now, if you, this encounter that we're coming to takes place um, roughly three years after uh, the Syrian battles, the battle at Samaria and at Aphek. And so, um, uh, and, and so when we think about what just took place in the last chapter, which was after Elijah confronts the king at Naboth's vineyard, Ahab surprises us. Um, he humbles himself. He, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He seems to enter into a time of sincere mourning and penitence for his sins. And God demonstrates an equally surprising response, which is he demonstrates mercy to the king, postponing. He doesn't take the judgment away, but he postpones the judgment. Well, since that time, King Ahab is up to his old tricks once more. And his heart has grown hard. Um, he um, has not demonstrated the fruit that is consistent uh, with genuine repentance. And so he, um, once again, he is uh, 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 refusing to follow the Lord. And in this scene, we will see how um, Ahab is placing his trust in these 400 prophets that have spoken to him uh, about going to war again or entering into a battle once more, that they're, they're just prophesying peace, peace, peace. Um, and then the true prophet enters into the scene. And, and that's where we pick up the story in verse 13 uh, in Second Kings or 1 Kings chapter 22. So would you stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? And the messenger who went to summon uh, Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, 
How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Canaan, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots. Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians, until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, And the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Would you bow your heads with me? Almighty God, 
Grant us to hear and understand what the Spirit says to the churches. Grant that we may receive and keep it as your word and not man's, that it may spring up in us unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. In the first 12 verses that I I passed over in the reading, we're presented with a challenge between 400 of the king's court prophets and a lone prophet of Yahweh. Uh, This challenge ultimately leads to the word of God being put to the test. And again, that is one of the key themes in in, uh, 1 and 2 Kings is the unbreakable nature of God's word. So we need to back up and just provide a a little bit of the context leading up to the arrival of the prophet Micaiah. At the start of the chapter, we're told that it's been three years since the battle of Samaria and the battle of Aphek took place um, against the Syrians who dwell just to the north of the northern kingdom. In that space of time, there has been peace uh, between Syria and Israel. However, there is a problem. Enter King Jehoshaphat, who is making an official state visit from the southern kingdom. Now, Jehoshaphat, as we will see, is um, he's a godly king. He is he's considered um, a, a king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. However, he makes this alliance. He makes an alliance with. Um, uh, king Ahab, and, and so this is partly why he is present with the king. Um, and to, to seal that alliance, um, uh, Jehoshaphat's king, uh, son marries the daughter of Ahab. So you can see that there was a very close relationship between these two kings. And Jehoshaphat is later criticized on this point. But on the whole, Jehoshaphat worships and loves uh, the God of Israel, Yahweh. King Ahab is commiserating that since his great victory over the Syrians, they had established a treaty. And as part of that treaty, the the king um, of Syria, Ben-Hadad, had agreed to restore to Israel all the towns and cities that they had um, taken away that were previously part of Israel and that they had taken. Well, one of these cities is this city known as Ramoth-Gilead, and it's about 25 miles on the east side of the Jordan River. The key thing about Ramoth-Gilead is that it's on a trade route. So it's a a significant city, economically speaking. Well, guess what the Syrians have refused or somehow forgotten to do? They have neglected to turn Ramoth-Gilead over to King Ahab. And that's what he's commiserating about is, can you believe this? You know, they made an agreement and that slickster, you know, the the King Ben-Hadad, you know, what a scuzzball. He won't return the city. So as he's commiserating, Ahab decides, you know what? Enough's enough. We're going to take the army and we are going to take possession of Ramoth-Gilead, which rightly belongs to us. And he turns to um, Jehoshaphat and says, will you go with me? And in verse 4, Jehoshaphat responds, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. 
That is, yes, we are in an alliance. I will go with you. However, King Jehoshaphat, being a godly king, says, can we seek the will of God? Can we, can we hear from one of the prophets of God? And so Ahab says, well, of course. <laughs> but Ahab doesn't quite seem to understand what Jehoshaphat is asking. Ahab brings in 400 prophets, but they're all connected to the court of Ahab. And they speak of, of, of the Lord, um, but the terminology they use is Adonai, this kind of more uh, a generic word for God. So these 400 prophets come into the king's presence, um, and you know Jehoshaphat's there. They're at the gates of Samaria, this kind of place of official um, uh, judgment being made. And then these 400 prophets show up, and, and they say, oh, yes. Um, uh, to summarize it, they say this. Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. All 400 in unison are saying this. Well, Jehoshaphat looks at, you know, <laughs> these 400 prophets. And it's not clear, are these, you know, if you remember at, the, at Mount Carmel, Carmel, there were 400 prophets that were attributed to um, uh, working with Asherah. Or, so that's a possibility that, that that's who these prophets are, what they're about, or, or possibly just going back to the uh, calf worship, um, which was in some sense the worship of Yahweh, but it was a false form. It was an idolatrous form of unacceptable worship. Either way, Jehoshaphat recognizes that these 400 are not true prophets, at least not in his view. And so he says to the king, is there not a single prophet of Yahweh that we can ask, that we can consult? And, and, and the text is kind of funny at this point. And Ahab, you know, you can just see him. He, 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 you know, he, he, he swallows and he says, Ugh, there is this one guy. There is this one prophet. Um, he is a, you'd probably like him. He's a prophet of Yahweh. But here's the, here's the deal. Um, he never says anything good. He is the most negative prophet. He never says anything good about me. And Jehoshaphat may be thinking, well, <laughs> there may be a reason for that. But finally, the king, um, he, he agrees. He says, okay. He sends his, his guard to go and bring the prophet of Yahweh, uh, a man by the name of Micaiah, uh, to come into the king's prophet and to render his verdict. You know, what is Yahweh's will about going up to Ramoth Gilead? And probably Ahab's thinking, you know, he's got to agree. I mean, look at our army. It rightly belongs to us. Surely God will be on our side, right? Well, Micaiah comes, and on the way, um, the, the escort, the, the, you know, the, the military escort for this prophet, he doesn't have any choice. He's got to appear before the king. Um, the military escort says, um, you would be wise uh, to agree with the 400 prophets that have already spoken. By the way, they've all given their uh, affirmation to the king's plans. Now, that's an interesting... So there's this view of the prophet that he has control over the word, right? That he can kind of, you know, either um, uh, shape it or direct it any way he desires, but that's not the case. And, and Micaiah just simply says, I will speak the truth. I will, I will speak 
what God has given to me. So there's Micaiah, and he appears um, uh, before the two kings. And at first, um, Micaiah just, um, uh, he, he, he almost voices word for word the um, affirmation of these 400 false prophets. And King Ahab knows, you know, that, that this prophet is being sarcastic. He knows that the, the prophet is being a, a, a little, um, uh, he's mocking him to some degree. And, and so even King Ahab, Micaiah, come on. <laughs> I know that's not what God said. Um, what did God really say? And so then we pick it up um, uh, in verse 17. Here's what Micaiah says. I saw all Israel. Now he's speaking the word of God. All Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. Now, this is a way of saying, what Micaiah is saying here is, the sheep represent Israel, the soldiers of Israel. And the, the prophecy states that they have now no shepherd, that they should just return back to their homes and to their cities in peace. And the meaning of this would be clear to the, the ancients. It was clear to the king. Um, and that is, the reason these sheep have no shepherd is because the shepherd is dead. The, the prophecy is telling Ahab and Jehoshaphat that if they go into battle, King Ahab uh, will be killed. Now, Ahab's response is interesting, and it's so much like the world's response. In general, he just rejects almost out of hand the, the word of Micaiah, you know, for all of his you know, his prophets are all saying the same thing. You're going to have success. Um, and the heart of the king wants to believe this. And, and so he just rejects the word that he doesn't want to agree or to believe. And he does a second thing. He blames the messenger. <laughs> Poor Micaiah, you know. So he, he faithfully delivers the word of God to the king. And the king's response is seize him, <laughs> arrest him. You know, throw, take him down to the jail um, uh, uh, under uh, uh, the governor and, and throw him in jail. And not only throw him in jail, like barely feed the guy, give him meager rations until I come back. Well, that's not good news for Micaiah. But then there's a third response. And the third response of the, of the king is fascinating because even though he rejects the word and even though he blames the messenger, he still fears the word. Did you catch that? He fears it in a strange kind of way. Ahab is, is a God-haunted king. And he, he, and he fears it. Well, how do we see that? Because then he enters into this little discussion with Jehoshaphat. Hey, hey my friend, <laughs> Jehoshaphat. Um, you know, I, you got to understand. I mean, just... just for precaution's sake, I'm just going to dress up like a normal, ordinary charioteer, okay? I'm not going to wear my, my kingly robes into battle, and, but you go ahead and wear yours. <laughs> you become the target in case, you know, the prophet's actually right. And so for some reason, Jehoshaphat agrees to this. 
And it turns out that the king of Syria, their whole military strategy is to just go for the head of the snake, to go after the king. Just almost don't even pay attention to the foot soldiers, the infantry, or the chariots. Just make it your objective to take the king out. And as we read, and and the actual battle is very brief um, in the narrative. But as we read, um, we see they go into battle. The troops, they mistake at first King Jehoshaphat for Ahab. And, um, and, And as soon as they recognize their mistake, they pull the troops back. But one archer just randomly lets, you know, before he can completely pull his, his bow down, he lets this, this arrow fly just randomly. Um, it, apparently, he was aiming first at King Jehoshaphat, but, but then he was told to hold off. And so, but he lets this arrow go, and this random arrow finds its mark. Not only does it hit Ahab, but it hits Ahab between the place where the, his, his uh, scale armor and his breastplate meet. There's just this one little gap, and this arrow penetrates it, delivering a mortal wound to the king. So the king draws back, he bleeds out, and he dies by the end. And the prophecy um, comes to fruition. It is fulfilled in its details when then the, the call goes out. The king is dead. Let every man return to his home in peace. They call off uh, the battle at Ramoth Gilead. I was thinking this was something like in The Hobbit. You may recall when Bard, uh, uh, the bowman, um, is fighting against Smog, uh, the, the dragon that has control of, of the mountain and of all this treasure. And there's, but there's this one little chink, if you recall, on the belly of, of Smog uh, that is missing its, its armor, its scale. And with, you know, that, that, you know, in this case, there's a large, I don't know, uh, uh, like spear-like uh, device. But with, with that last um, arrow, they shoot. Bard is able to hit smog in that one vulnerable location. And I was thinking this is something like that, except it's not even that dramatic. It's, I mean, it's even more dramatic because this archer wasn't even aiming, apparently, at any particular place. He was just trying to hold back you know, um, his shot against King Jehoshaphat. And that arrow um, flew truly and found its mark in the king. Ahab, well, and in this providence of God, that's what we see here. We see the sovereign determination of God to fulfill his word. And we read then, not only is it fulfilled in the death of Ahab, but an earlier prophecy is triggered when we read about how when they, re- they return to Samaria and they're cleaning out the chariot that has the king's blood and it's outside of the city, that dogs come and lick up the blood just as the prophet um, had declared would take place. What we are seeing is God's amazing power to bring every promise, every prophecy of his uh, uh, of His word to fulfillment. And God's word is unbreakable. 
because it is backed up by the full almighty power of the triune God and according to his determination. Now, this is good news. It's good news to those who have placed their trust in the promises of God. God will always honor those who honor his word. And even if you're the only one who is standing on the promises of God, God will one day vindicate your faith. That's what is being demonstrated to us here, is that Micaiah is being vindicated. But it's also bad news. It's bad news for those who are like Ahab. It's bad news for those who hear the word, but dismiss the word. Who hear the word, but they reject the word. They hear the word, and they try to evade it. They try to escape it, but they will not ultimately escape the word of God. Over and over, God is showing us there is great reason. As we see in this narrative before us, great reason, great evidence to place our trust in his word. There's great evidence to trust the apostles and the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name and ultimately to place our trust in the living word, okay? The living word, Jesus Christ, the one who lived a fully righteous life, the one who was crucified on the cross but brought to life gloriously in the body on the third day and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this leads us back to the mysterious aspect, or at least one mysterious aspect of this passage. It's found in the prophecy delivered by Micaiah, the prophet. And it's troubling to many that God sends a lying spirit to cause the false prophets uh, to uniformly speak a deceptive falsehood to the king. When Micaiah um, begins to deliver the the prophecy, he tells immediately, King, you're going to die if you go to war, if you go to this battle. But he doesn't stop there. And he continues by describing this um, experience that he has in in the throne room of God. So Micaiah has this experience. It's it's a Moses-like, Elijah-like, Isaiah, Ezekiel-like experience where he is permitted as God's man to enter into the, the very throne room of God. And he's granted this vision of, of God on his throne, and he's surrounded by the heavenly hosts, by the, the cherubim and the seraphim and, and other angelic hosts. And you see like this, this, this divine council taking place where the Lord is speaking and, and gaining um, uh, uh, counsel from the, the angelic hosts that surround him. And God states plainly what his will is. His will, the objective, is for judgment to fall upon the king, to fall upon Ahab. And it's the Lord's will for that judgment to fall in battle. It's his judgment that by going to to try to take possession of Ramoth-Gilead, that that's where the king will meet his end. But then he asked the angel coast, how will we do this? You know, and then there's like this conversation that isn't given to us. But then there's one angel that says, I will go and entice all of Ahab's prophets, these false prophets, to speak a lie, to deceive the king, 
to confirm to the king, you know, quotation marks, to confirm that he will be successful, that he will enjoy a great, glorious victory, another one. After all, has he not already defeated the Syrians twice? Well, this raises interesting questions. How how can God, it's wrong to lie, right? How can God um, authorize this lying spirit to go forth? And not only does he authorize, he says, and you're going to be successful uh, in doing and you know, deceiving the prophets, placing this false word, this lying word in their mouths, and then delivering this word to the king. Well, this is an ethical quandary. It doesn't help to say, well, it wasn't God who directed, you know, maybe this was an evil spirit and God allows it. But no, God is authorizing. This is part of his plan. This is part of his will. So how do we think about this? And I think this points to one of these sharp edges about God that we need to pay attention to. I'm following at this point um, one Old Testament uh, pastor and and, uh, writer, uh, Peter Lightheart. And and his commentary, I think, is helpful because he argues that what has happened here is Ahab has become an enemy to the Lord. And there's, there's at least one context where lying or deception is ethically um, uh, allowed. And this is the ethics of war. So when you are in a war with, with an enemy, you do not have to give them the truth. In fact, it is kind of an accepted principle of war that if you can deceive your enemy, that if you can somehow gain the element of surprise, that this is actually um, uh, demonstrating a, a shrewd understanding of, uh, of war, of good tactics. You know, one example that we see in more recent history is the enormous deception that was put over on the Germans during World War II by the Allies, specifically by the British and the Americans, in the lead-up to D-Day. D-Day is when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy in order to gain a military foothold uh, in France and to then ultimately liberate France, which would lead then to victory in Europe. But leading up to D-Day, when thousands of of troops would um, uh, invade the, the beaches of Normandy, there was... A month, for months, there was a campaign to deceive and lie to the Germans. And they pulled every trick out of the book possible. They wanted the Germans to believe, the Germans knew that the the Allies were going to invade, of course, but they wanted the Germans to believe that the the invasion was going to come 150 miles to the north, where, which was the shortest distance between England um, across the English Channel over into France. And in order to foster this deception, they be, the, the Allies, um, they, they created uh, 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 tanks that were inflatable tanks. And they, they placed them all along this region, 150 miles to the north, they began to have just a small number of troops in and out of of local establishments. They went even so far as to begin printing wedding announcements in the local uh, papers that were completely fictitious. They created a false armada. They created canvas, you know, just canvas over chicken wire planes so that the the reconnaissance planes of the Germans would see this buildup of troops 
150 miles to the north. And then they captured some, some German spies, and they turned them, and they placed this double, inform, you know, this false information that the German spies gave directly to their commanding officers so that the Germans were completely duped. They were completely convinced that the, the attack was going to come to the north. They also did this. They created this falsehood that the Scottish army was planning to attack um, uh, the Germans through Scandinavia, which led uh, Hitler to, to redirect an, a division of German soldiers into Scandinavia to block this completely fictitious Scottish army. Okay? The plan worked beautifully. And, and the Allies still lost thousands of soldiers in their invasion and their storming of the beaches, but it would have been far worse. They may not even have been successful if Hitler had actually known where the attack was going to come. But that's an example where we look at that with that. That's brilliant. That, that, was, that was just a genius. And we celebrate that because we recognize that the ethics of war permit lying and deception. And this is sort of the kind of deception that God uses ultimately to defeat the devil. Well, what do I mean? The Lord is able to trick the greatest enemy, Satan, into his own demise. How? By tricking the evil one into believing that at the cross, he had the the Son of God, that he had him dead to rights, that he had victory at hand when he just masterfully leads all the the Israelite and Roman leaders to to come together in their plot to, to have Jesus crucified on the cross. And you can imagine this is the devil's greatest hour where he thinks victory is at hand. It looked like, you know, things could go badly if the, the, the Messiah King, you know, goes to war against me, but no. I have, uh, I have um, figured out a way to defeat the Messiah, the Son of God, at the cross. But of course, the cross becomes the devil's Waterloo. This becomes his, his it's, a, it's a D-Day experience where this is where the devil is, is, is ultimately defeated. Now it's just, you know, it's a, it's a mop-up operation, so to speak, in comparison. This is where the devil and all his principles Powers and principalities were defeated. But if the devil had known, would he have gone through with it? Well, that's not so clear, is it? God is treating Ahab as a wartime enemy. He intends to bring judgment on Ahab, and one means for doing so is to have Ahab killed by the Syrians in battle. And this highlights another sharp edge as it relates to Jesus. Don't forget that Jesus used a kind of language that was intended to hide the truth of God and the kingdom of God from those Jewish um, leaders who, like Ahab, had fallen under the wrath and judgment of God. Well, again, what are you talking about? Mark chapter 4. Jesus explains to the disciples why he is increasingly teaching in the form of parables. And we usually think that the reason Jesus uh, tells so many parables is that parables are these illustrations uh, that help just clarify, that make the meaning of the kingdom of God and the gospel crystal clear. But notice what Jesus actually says about at least one purpose 
in his teaching with parables. This is Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Jesus says to his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, they hear me telling the parables, but not understand. Why? Lest they should turn and be forgiven. What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that those who are his followers, who love him, he reveals, he speaks clearly to them. But to those who have come under this judgment of the Lord, this becomes a kind of judgment language where the actual truths about the kingdom are being veiled through the confusion of parables and um, Christ is allowing uh, his enemies to develop false conclusions. This reminds us that God is long-suffering in his patience, but his patience is not eternal with the impenitent and with the hard-hearted. There may come a point when God turns people over to the hardness of their heart, when he withdraws his grace and mercy from them. He treats them as enemies. The Apostle Paul, he's talking something along these lines about why it is that only a remnant of the Jews have believed. And he says, this is all part of God's sovereign will. But then he warns his readers in Romans chapter 11, and the apostle writes this, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Don't, and and here's the warning here. Don't let your hearts grow hard. Don't presume on God's grace. Don't presume on God's forgiveness. And especially if you're here, you're thinking, oh, well, I love to hear, you know, for whatever reason, uh, uh, preaching. Or maybe you don't. You're just here for other reasons. But, or maybe you're listening um, uh, online. But this is a reminder. Do not presume that you have all eternity to turn to the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus reminds us for the gate, that is the gate of salvation is narrow, And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Today is the day of salvation. Today is a reminder. Don't presume on God's grace. Um, He is the Lord. God's word is unbreakable. God's word will come to pass. It can't be stopped, evaded, or escaped. And second, when God's patience comes to an end, he's not above using deception in order to further harden the hearts of his enemies and to bring judgment. So be warned, do not presume upon the grace of God. Let's pray. Eternal God, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, renew us in spirit and soul and body for your service. Let your word illumine for us every hour of the darkness and shine before us through the business of the day. 
And when at last, having safely passed through the sleep of death, we wake to your great morn, may we be satisfied in your likeness and walk in the light of the Lord forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.